You're listening to the Creative Riding Motorcycle Podcast. Pop a beer and throw an earbud in your ear. Now, here's your host. Listen, I can barely tie a shoe, let alone figure out this thing. And isn't that funny how people say not to be an asshole, but then they go on to be an asshole? My skin met the asphalt, but these new new ways kit my... All right, a couple of blurbs, whatever they do with cocaine... The victim. I mean, guests. It's, it's usually such a horribly set up bike, but they like how it looks. It's a cafe racer with alloy manks, racing tank, and clip-ons and all that jazz. The Soma actually was purchased by uh, the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum. Yeah. You know, after this interview, I sound like a fat, hairy, bearded slob. Um, so I'm familiar with the long hours and the uncomfortable seat. Kangaroos are just leaping down the street every day. Um, all right, technically all chaps are assholes, right? Or else yeah, you just, you'll just be love the I don't have it perfected. I have to stop talking shit. The more I talk it, the more my bike messes up. My wife's like, you're 41 and started a race career. I'm like, yeah, and it's amazing. Yeah. All right, well, now you know what you're in for. I do this show with no clothes on. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Creative Riding Motorcycle Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Swayze's ghost. So, hey, people, I must admit something. <clears throat> I feel terrible about this, but it happened, okay? <clears throat> I'm kind of talking quiet tonight because I swallowed some food. It was really hot. I was trying to test it for my kids, trying to be a good dad. But what happened? I burned my esophagus all the way down from my tongue down to my poop chute. It's like it shot through. It's like a flaming rocket from space shot right through my whole entire body. And every time I swallow or every time I eat something, I can feel it go all the way down. I'm probably just a big blister from the back of my throat down to where my little vat of sulfuric acid or hydrochloric acid is in my tummy. And, um, yeah, fucking vegetator tot, yo, took me out. So if you notice that I'm pausing or swallowing a lot during this episode, I'm my apologies. I, it totally sucks. If you have acid reflux, I bet I know what it feels like now. Like it's not pleasant and it's painful and it feels like, uh, I can't even swallow or really breathe without this weird pain. So some of the segments that I recorded before, You'll hear, I don't sound like this. And some of them that I'm recording now, I'm going to be a little bit more subdued. It's going to be like I just toked on a fat doobie. Hey, that got legalized here in California last Tuesday. So uh, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary, but I don't do that stuff. So just thought I'd let you know if my, if it sounds like I have a weird accent or I'm talking quiet, it's because just because I was trying to be a good dad and I ate a volcanic-temperatured piece of food. So don't do it, folks. Don't do it. Learn from my mistake. Don't do it. (laughs) So, hey, I've been doing some research recently on some old stuff. Not only watching old movies, not old, old ancient, but older. Um... Been doing some research on some older bikes, Uh, really been inspired recently by the rhetoric that's been going around on other podcasts about, well, at least one podcast about uh, 
what to do with maybe uh, revive some older bikes and smaller bikes. Yeah, and you know how I predicted the 80s sport bike and sidecar craze? At least I think I did. I've seen a lot of people talking about that too. So getting into some whether or not they're older sport bikes or older um, standards or whatever, just kind of reviving some old uh, cheesy cheap stuff. Now, a long time ago, I know I said, wouldn't it be great if bikes had like zero technology on them? Because then you could learn to wrench on a bike that didn't have a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of gizmos that you had to figure out and learn. Also, it meant that you would get your controls down, uh, you know, get the basic controls down. And you could really learn how to brake, how to corner, how to throttle, you know, without looping it. And, uh, you know, be able to, to regulate your speed in a corner, uh, you know, not have to worry about too much stuff while you're learning the basics. However... Once I started doing research for this episode, I decided I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to research the way you used to have to research when these bikes that I'm looking up were made. You know, if I'm going to be looking up like a 1990, uh, you know, Ninja or something like that or EX500, I might as well go ahead and use the resources available in 1990. If I want to be looking up an old 82 Ascot or 85 Ascot or whatever, I might as well use the resources that people in 1982 used to look up Ascots and research Ascots. Well, come to find out, the internet wasn't really a thing before like 1995-ish. And then the dot-com boom happened and... Uh, nobody really even used them for like a couple more years after that. So if you're really trying to look up anything pre-95, you're going to go to the library and check out some old magazine and hopefully they still have it archived or some something. Hopefully they still have a uh, a copy, you know, everything's not a Kindle nowadays. Oh, another piece of technology that's revolutionizing the way we interact in this world. Uh, you know, so easy to look down at your phone and just get a little piece of info. Imagine being like your dad or your grandpa or some of people that are, you know, if you're right in that age, like I was right in that age where, where the internet like uh, became a thing. So I, I kind of remember before it. I mean, I definitely remember before cell phones. You, It was a little bit harder to research stuff. You had to actually go sit on bikes, go to your local uh, library or newsstand and buy an article. You re- I think you really relied. I mean, you still rely on articles and other reviews nowadays. But back then, you had a handful of written reviews or published reviews from people in magazines, which is still just a handful of, you know, you can't, how many, how many reader mails did they used to get back then? And, this, and pre-email, huh? These were like literal letters that people used to write, missives, if you will, to the magazines, and they would read them all. So it's really interesting. Before email and before there was a bajillion, quadrillion forums and uh, reviews, Every single place, you know, you type something in and now you can get like a 100,000 reviews for even if it's a dumb pencil or something. But back in the day, there was only a hand, you know, you basically, except for your experience, you had a handful 
of reviews to go off of and a handful of things to go off of. So I decided I didn't like doing that. I don't like going and researching all stuff. I think it's kind of cool to go back and read uh, vintage articles or read older articles, dig through some physical archives and stuff. I think that's swell and great. But it's sort of the way I'm thinking about motorcycles nowadays where, you know, it it was it was really great, but there's a lot of advancement that society has made in general, and therefore a lot of advancement that motorbikes have made. And maybe they're not as cool as I used to think they were. You know what I mean? Like I used to think that it would be kind of kind of nice to have just a plain Jane motorcycle. And I still think that paring down a lot of stuff is still really good for beginning riders. But uh, I've never ridden a bike with ABS myself, at least not one that I can remember. Um, you know, I've never owned a bike with ABS, but thinking about how ABS works on newer bikes and, uh, thinking about how we can have these quote, this whole retro craze that's going on right now. And they have, it's come around every few years, you know, there's like a retro craze, then there's a custom craze and then there's a cruiser craze. So it just, it keeps cycling. And right now the retro craze happening is pretty cool because we're getting retro styled bikes with all this really sweet tech on them. Like the triumphs. A lot of people are pissed that they went to fuel injection. I have no problem with that. They even, Oh, they fake them to look like throttle bodies or carburetors. Well, if you look at a throttle body, it kind of does, I mean, look like a carburetor with a lot less crap hanging on it. Air still does pass through a Venturi and Butterfly and all that stuff. So, I mean, the only difference is like a big carburetor bowl hanging off the side or something. And, you know, it's not a whole lot different except for maybe if it's ride-by-wire and um, instead of a cable. So, but, I mean, that's little stuff. That's weird stuff that you would even have to be paying attention to notice. But, you know, you can do a lot of stuff. Royal Enfield, actually, even one of these companies that's had the same tools since 1959 and the same dies and everything, and that's why they're so crappy is because a lot of stuff's cast and they've been using the same uh, t- die and tool and and casting and all that stuff since, same stuff since 59. They recently updated it in like 2013 or 12, 13, or 14, I can't remember. But, you know, even they went to into uh, fuel injection. And, you know, uh, it's pretty cool. It's still a really old-looking bike, and it still looks like carbs. But they went to fuel injection, and now you don't have to worry about jetting your, your Bullet 500 for the Himalayas and then also driving down to the Dead Sea or whatever. I mean, I don't know if that's at sea level. It sounds like it's dead. But, you know... I think you get what I'm getting at. When you start to go back and read some of these old articles and you can see what, you know, when they started using better brakes and how crappy the brakes were and they, you know, they were good for the time, but nowadays it'd feel like squeezing, uh, you know, your brake rotor with the literally reaching down with tweezers and squeezing it or just like wood. Like, what are my brake pads made of? You know, wood? Are, are they Are they pine or cedar? Because... You know, they're not really grabbing very well, whatever the case may be. I'm really changing my mind as we're going in, especially into this year with the whole barrage of new bikes, the Euro 4 specs that are coming over. The Along with the Euro 4 stuff, there is a lot of Euro tiered licensing that happened. And uh, I know I also talked about the onslaught of small bikes. And I think I spent a good portion of uh, two episodes ago talking about that. Actually, 
I might have even talked about it last episode because they're coming and it's going to be interesting to see at IMS what they're what they're bringing over to the states because a whole lot of people have been announcing it for like the last few months. So I'm really interested to see what is going to be coming over as far as small displacement, what it's going to have on it because apparently anything over 125 in Europe is going to be required to have ABS now, which I think is pretty pretty great when you think about you won't lose the front end in the corner as easily anymore. I mean, you can always overcome any rider aids whether it's the slide control, wheelie control, um ABS, you know, you can always outdo the stuff, but uh Listening to some people talk about riding and, and getting on the brakes in a corner when you're not used to when you're learning, when you're not used to riding, ABS really can save you. If you lock that front, I'm mean, that's how I had my first very first street crash. I grabbed a handful of brake while I was turning. I wasn't counter steering in the first place. And then I grabbed brake and the front end just totally washed. So uh, yeah, it's super easy to do. And in those panic moments, if the bike I was on was equipped with ABS, it wouldn't have locked the front. I might have actually rode out of that. I mean, very clumsily and awkward, maybe banged off the curb or something, but I wouldn't have, I maybe would have rode out of it, you know? So looking at old stuff, forget about it. You try and go back, go to your library, go, you know, I don't even know where you'd find old print stuff anymore. Sometimes your library doesn't have it or they'll have an archive and be able to tell you where it is. And you go on the Internet and read old articles on the Internet. So the irony is you can't even get some of this technology that, you know, you can't even research bikes the way. Uh, they used to have to when they were brand new. So I was trying to research an 85 and a, and a 90. Hell, there was, like I said, not any internet back then. And the funny thing is you go to the library and there's a really nice one in Pasadena and they actually do have a lot of print stuff still, like just uh, volumes of print stuff and archive stuff. Um, but when you get to something that's old, you know, they used to microfiche it and now it's interneted. So, I mean, they're even using new technologies to talking about, you know, people disguising throttle bodies to look like carburetors, they're doing the same thing. They're taking this old thing and publishing it on this new thing. So it's I think it's kind of great, uh, all the technology that's coming out on newer bikes. And I'm, I'm done poo-pooing it. Um, you know, there's nothing better than not having to jet and burn up your bike, but I think it is cool. You know, I've been researching some older bikes and stuff, and I really think it is cool that you can still learn to play around with that stuff. I mean, I, I don't know if there's people that shoot, uh, photos on film anymore. Cause I'm not hundred percent sure if they're still who's making film, um, but it's sort of the same thing. Pretty soon the resource, it's going to be like a white elephant maintaining it and finding resources for it is going to be way more expensive than the actual thing is worth. So it's, uh, you know, same thing with motorcycles, uh, machining little tiny drills to drill out, you know, carb passages and clean your carbs or, or jet up or jet down going to be way more expensive to make and continue to make than it is for, um, you know, for somebody to make a computer program that maps your, your drive, I mean, your uh, ECU and, you know, reflash your, your ECU to program your, your jets, your, your fuel injectors, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I don't know, just something to think about. And, uh, totally went off on a little tangent, like, you know, but I'm trying to make a point here. And the fact is that 
uh, I'm really excited. I'm gonna be. We're gonna be talking about older technology, and we're gonna be talking about older times. This whole podcast, and uh, just wanted to kind of touch base on that. If you, I don't know what year your bike is, but go back to that year and time. Look what the number one song was. Look how people had to research stuff. You actually had to go if you were writing a research paper. You had to go to the library and check out encyclopedias and all this crap that was probably, by the time you read it, it was already outdated. That's the great thing about the internet, and that's the great thing about motorcycles nowadays, you know, relating everything to the technology that we live in is that we're always advancing, and uh, nowadays something happens. You can reflash your ECU. You can remap your ECU. You can swap out a fuel injector. You know what I mean? You can... You can do all sorts of mods still to this great stuff that is way better than, you know, even to stuff 10 years ago. And I feel like it's the same way with, you know, whatever, whatever creative stuff you're doing on your motorcycle, whether it's painting, uh, whether it's, you know, welding, there's always people changing that. And for something that's as old as, you know, as fabrication, the process is maybe the same, but the method that you do it changes. So even stuff like that, like even crafting motorcycles has become more streamlined and, and easier because of technology and stuff. So I have no problem really with uh, the new technology coming out. And I'll probably save that for the end because, it, you know, something exciting for me is happening uh, this week and I want to talk about in the end. So in the beginning here, I'm just going to skip past my whole segment I was going to do about older bikes and all that great stuff. And we have a guest on the show. And uh, I'd like to start this show out with a bang. So let's let's get our guest on. And then we'll talk about old tech and new tech. So earlier on the show, I was talking about uh, technology and wouldn't it be crazy if you had to use, you know, with all the technology coming on to retro styled bikes recently, how awesome that makes, you know, riding a quote vintage bike. And wouldn't it be crazy if you had to use the same technology to look up stuff nowadays that you did (laughs) back when these bikes were, uh, you know, we're on the market instead of being able to type something into the internet. And speaking of like vintage and retro stuff and retro technology, we have a guest on the show tonight and I'm going to go ahead and let him introduce himself. Take it away, guest. Can you, can you give us your name real quick? Yes, I am guest number 632 on creative writing podcast. And I have been programmed to uh, answer all questions perfectly. And truthfully. And truthfully. Uh, my name is Eric Johnson, and uh, I think Larry and I have known each other since we were about 13 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Which is scary to think about. I know. Now that we're 113, that really feels terrible. <laughs> and if I do the math right, that's around 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, My line uh, of work what, math is important. <laughs> uh, yeah, very, very. You have to know timing, you know, that 1612 time signature. Um, not to get ahead of ourselves, what is it that you do? And, and where are you located, first of all? Are you, uh, 
enjoying yourself down in Florida or are you uh, in Scandinavia? We need, we need some geography here. Um, I, I am considering moving to Scandinavia uh, because of the current political climate, but um, no, I'm in, I'm in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I'm a transplant from San Diego, California. Cool. Uh, what do you do up there in Coeur d'Alene? Uh, right now I'm drinking a stone ruination. Um, but that's not all I do. Earlier today, I was <laughs> I was working on a BMW R90, and uh, so I do a little bit of wrenching on motorcycles. Um, you can check out my website at fifty nine cafe dot com, and I play um, jump blues music, which is a type of swing from the uh, late forties, early fifties. And a whole lot of ass kicking, if I if I remember correctly. <laughs> My ass kicking days are behind me. My ass is oh, the no. only ass I'm kicking these days. <laughs> right, and it's behind you too. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did you get started with uh, Fifty Nine Cafe? Um, <laughs> actually, you're involved in this story because. Uh-oh. <laughs> the first two motorcycles I ever got were um, were project bikes, one of which was a Honda CM450, I want to say, automatic, the sweet CM automatic. And the other one was actually a little cooler, was a uh, SR250. Rad. Uh, yeah, we all know how reliable and favorable those CMs were. They're pretty awesome. And then I'm going to show you uh, if I can tilt the camera down without making too much noise. <laughs> there's, there's the, my baby. Yeah, there's the, it's my baby. <laughs> <laughs> it had been, if I remember so, correctly, we lit on fire and wheelied down the street and jumped across drainage ditches before I got it. Yeah. I mean, shoot, that may have been almost like the late nineties. Was that like 99? Somewhere around there. I don't know. 99, 01, somewhere around there. Okay, um, I didn't get it. Anyhow, didn't. you have about 59 Cafe. And uh, so my point was I had to become a motorcycle mechanic before I could be a motorcyclist because of those two motorcycles. <laughs> so um, anyhow, I just, nobody was doing cafe racers at the time, except uh, that I knew anyway, except uh, Carpy um, up in... Uh, Orange County or LA and uh, who is now a absolute rock star. And I am, I've completed my conversion to absolute hermit. And uh, (laughs) I like it that way. I started making bikes work and then started making them pretty. And then people wanted some of them. So. Right. That's that's how that worked. And so now we have 59 cafe is actually a vintage motorcycle group in the area. It's not actually my business. I just, I actually on Friday nights invite people over and let them wrench in my shop. And then I, I own about 30 motorcycles myself. That sounds you're a garage with a bike problem. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So going back, were those your first two motorbikes or how did you get started in in motorcycling? Um, Well, my drug dealing brother, half brother, when I was a kid, is probably my first experience with motorcycles. And um, so I kind of initially had a negative connotation to Harley's because of him. 
And because that's what he always rode. He was kind of a chopper, outlaw, biker kind of guy. And so um, <laughs> I don't want to alienate anybody. But, um, but anyhow, so that was my first experience with motorcycles. Um, except for I did go to the desert. And out there, it was, you know, mini Honda mini bikes and three-wheelers when I was a kid. And then in high school, my buddy Jack Barnett and uh, Mikey Hotman. Jack had a Triumph Daytona and Mikey had a Norton Commando. And of course I was like, Oh my gosh, what are those? And I wanted those, but um, by the time I was of legal age and resources to own a bike, a Brit bike wasn't really a possibility. Yeah. And nowadays those things go for like $6,000, like when they're in the weeds. So it's like the days of $500 commandos in boxes, I think are over unless you're really lucky. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody who found it and has no idea what it is. I was going to say, how long have you been doing your craft? But that calling it a craft kind of sounds hipstery. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I've been making, um, artesian. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've been making artesian uh, gluten-free cafe racers for uh, <laughs> since around 99, 1999, 2000, somewhere around there. Uh, so what are the typical type of bikes that you work with and that you have in your garage or that you have people come over and work on? Um, you know, I, I help people with vintage British mostly these days, um, but I am working on a, uh, on a, R90. It's a 70 something R90 um, BMW. And I, uh, in my shop, some of my favorite bikes are, uh, we have a 1968 R60 slash two, and then a whole bunch of Brit bikes, you know, Norton's triumphs, BSAs. Rad. And then I also actually still love vintage Hondas. Particularly yeah. the Dreams and the CL four fifties are some of my favorites. Yeah, for sure. Those those are cool. And the little like the CB one sixties I like. And there's a lot of little Hondas that are pretty cool. I think still. Um, I have a CB one sixty for sale if you'd like to buy it. It's jet wow. ski green, so it would match your jet ski. Yeah. <laughs> First, let me get a green jet ski, and then I'll <laughs> then I'll hit you up. Uh, so with all the the resurrection i should say of cafe racers and whatnot what's your opinion of brown seats you know everybody's got to have a brown brown seat on their custom nowadays you're just trying to push all my buttons aren't you (laughs) um i actually i like i like brown seats because dead cows are primarily brown so you know i mean uh i I like brown seats how do you feel about brown seats i don't like brown seats ever i feel I feel no. You know what? The first time I saw one, I was like, "Holy crap, that was great!" And then, like the four hundred and thirty-third thousandth time I saw one, I was like, "Oh my god, this idea is like picked up quickly." Let's just put it that way, and got overdone. I've seen like dirt bikes with like hipsters take a dirt bike and take all the fenders off and put a brown seat on it, and I'm like, "Dude, <laughs> you, you just basically ruined the bike," you know? <laughs> so but, I mean that that opens up like a whole different topic. And, and I think for me, and it, it goes with the question is when you build a bike, it should be done holistically. 
regardless of whether, so I build, I build traditional cafe racers. I don't build modern interpretations of cafe racers. Um, but regardless of whether you're building a chopper or a modern version of a cafe racer, which hopefully they'll rename sometime soon or a classic cafe racer or whatever, it, if it's all done, you know, as a whole, as, a, as, as opposed to slapping, Oh, I like brown seats. I'll slap that on there. And I like neon red rims. I'll slap those on there. And, you know, and a lot right. of people and whatever to each their own, um, that's fine. But, but I think that, for example, my inspiration comes from going to vintage races and old photos of vintage cafe racers and old photos of vintage race bikes and um, which weren't a whole lot different back in the day. You know, a, a race bike didn't have a headlight and it had a, you know, tuned up motor. Yeah. And, um, yeah. But the cafe racers back in the fifties and sixties before companies really started um, marketing them, they, they looked like the bikes out on the track and that's what I really like. So, and some of those have yeah. brown seats because, you know, they just grab whatever, whatever leather they had lying around. And that's the thing uh, I think also is I, I, I just mentioned this on the last episode is that everybody's making like quote scramblers and uh, even cafe racers. I thought that trend was dead, but it kind of seems to be making a resurgence with Ducati having just released the cafe racer at ICMA a few, a couple weeks ago. And, yeah. um, and everybody, even the scrambler had like 14 different configurations. And of course they included brown seats and, uh, yeah, there, I think they were just calling stuff things and not really built hearkening back to the actual beginnings. And, and that's what I mentioned on my last episode is that back in the day you bought a bike and, to make it a scrambler, you basically put offenders like, you know, maybe m like mud fenders or some Preston petty fenders and dirt, dirt tires on it. You, and then you, you know, this is like before there was platforms, there was one platform. And if you wanted to make it a road racer, you threw a fairing on it and rear sets. If you wanted a right. dirt bike, you took the same bike and put uh, dirt tires on it you know basically and, and maybe different handlebars took it out to the desert so yeah the, right i, I kind of think people are getting, getting back to that <laughs> yeah, right right you would you would swap you would use the same base and then just swap out as needed stuff that's going to get bashed or make that the purpose you know accessories i guess were kind of like the, the the way you built a bike back then and uh, so this brown seat thing just is funny to me how everything has to have a brown seat and the OEMs caught onto it too. Cause a lot of them offer brown seats on everything like the BMW R9T scrambler comes with a brown seat, you know, like, you know, that black dye is genetically modified, right? <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. That's why I get, okay. So they're going, they're actually going organic with this is what they're doing. <sighs> right. It's artesian. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess if we didn't dye any leather black, uh, bikers would have been like hardcore dirtbag bikers would have been going around in chamois colored vests. <laughs> in the <60s>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> that doesn't look so tough. <laughs> let's be nice. <laughs> that doesn't look so tough. Uh, so I just hey, want you to know that if you want a bike with a brown seat, I'm not going to make fun of you. It's, it's cool. Right, right. But we're going right. to do the whole I bike. about it. We're going to do the whole bike all at the same time. 
to transition to from motorbikes to to music, is it a big jump? Um, especially if you're, I guess for you, you're dealing sort of in the same era of both. Well, I have to wash my hands. Otherwise, my strings get really yeah. dirty. But other than that, I pretty much I'm so disconnected with society. And <laughs> I live I live outside of town on five acres. I have my music studio up in the house and I have my shop down, you know, 20 feet away. I've got a half pipe down there so I can get my exercise. I'm pretty much I can shoot deer from my back deck. <laughs> So I'm pretty detached these days, to be honest with you. Um, but I live, I I live in that era. I just love that era. And uh, <laughs> sounds like you're living the dream, actually. Yeah, Make, yeah making except, me jealous. Except I'm all alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Human interaction every once in a while is nice, but I find most people are just staring at their cell phone anyway. So. I don't right. really know where to go except like find old people who are racing in the fifties and sixties. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, is, to that talk your, to. is that who you play music for then is the uh, old people that are, that don't have self, don't know how to work a cell phone. They're like, <laughs> they are the only people stuff. that even go listen to live music. anymore. <laughs> 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 no. no, actually, you know, what's cool is, um, so we primarily play for swing dancers and there's, there's a whole underground scene of people that are really, really into vintage dances. And the coolest thing about it is they don't carry their cell phones while they're swing dancing. And, um, they range from, you know, I mean, 18 year olds up to 80 year olds at our shows. That's awesome. And they all really, really appreciate what we're doing. So it's, that's awesome. Yeah. Do anybody ride motorcycles there? <laughs> um, not, not, not while they're dancing. That came out wrong. I meant like, I, I guess I meant like sort of like car show, bike show slash yeah. swing, swing dance. <laughs> you know, up here, it is a little more disjointed, um, the different scenes than it was in Southern California. In SoCal, you've had those scenes kind of intermingled since the 50s even the forties really, because, you know, only the like scumbag bikers weren't racist back in that day. So you'd go see, you know, like black bands or, or racially mixed bands and um, bikers have always kind of been outlaws, you know, you know, outside of the norms, norms of society, uh, particularly back then. And so was, um, there was a lot of, uh, racial separation and music. And um, so, you know, I mean, no, it's no surprise to anybody that greasers were bikers and they were the ones who were out dancing. And so in Southern California, you have a lot of cross contamination, if you will, <laughs> of the scenes, you know, you have bikers that are into rockabilly and swing music and jazz and, um, and car guys that are really into it. So there was, I really, I do miss that about Southern California because it's a really old culture where those things all mixed together. Whereas up here, um, there's been motorcycles. Like I own a couple of bikes from a racer from the fifties. And, um, 
you know, Bing Crosby was from Spokane, Washington, which is basically my next door neighbor. Uh, Spokane's, you know, half hour away from Coeur d'Alene. And so there were both things, but they were not really a interwoven um, culture. Yeah. And so I'm, I am really working hard to try to bridge those gaps since we have a vintage motorcycle group and we have a vintage R&B swing, rock and roll, jazz, call it what you will. What we play is, is a mixture of all those things. And that's what it was in, in that era. So everybody in our band rides. So. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that totally bridges. I mean, that kind of ties everything together right there. You know, I was actually going to ask you how the music scene was in your area and if it was something you guys had to, to develop or if you kind of like slid into an existing thing, but it kind of sounds like you're, you're building it right now along with the whole culture, you know, whether or not you're a biker or not, but, but like, you know, kind of integrating it and building it up, building up both scenes right now. It kind of sounds uh, like you're building the music scene and bridging it across to the motorcycle scene and integrating what you enjoyed about SoCal up there. So that's pretty cool. I mean, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, motorcycle, vintage motorcycles are nothing new up here and jazz is nothing new up here. Like I said, both cultures existed. They just didn't intermingle. And my dream is to, to get those scenes together because if you have an appreciation for mid-century design, mid-century clothes, mid-century music, mid-century, I mean, one of my favorite things about vintage motorcycles is that the BSA manual says on like page six, do not assume that the factory did everything right. And like I said, I, I open up my shop on Friday nights and drink a beer and and let people come in and I just kind of float around and help them fix their bikes because I want them. I say, you need to buy a manual and you need to bring your own tools. And I try to get them in a mindset that it takes to be happy um, as a vintage motorcycle owner, because you can be miserable with a vintage motorcycle if you're not prepared for it. But you and I are both the type of people that love working on stuff. And there are a lot of people like that. Yeah. It's almost just as much fun. I was just talking to my coworker about this. It's almost just as much fun to tinker with something and figure out how it works or figure out what's wrong and get it working. And then know that you did that job as it is to, to write it afterwards and feel that satisfaction that you just did that, you know, they both, so that's, they complement each other. Like your ride is so much sweeter if it happened because of you, not because of right. wallet, you know? Right. I and thought you were going to rhyme that. Uh, yeah. Wiki, wiki, whack. <laughs> Your rhyme is so much sweeter. <laughs> I don't, what, nothing rhymes with sweeter. That's one of those weird words. Uh, uh, so that's awesome. And then going forward, do you have any plans? I, do you like, do you guys run like a bike night or anything? Or do you guys do events where you showcase bikes and music or, any, or anything like that? Um, we do. We do a, a monthly vintage bike night, and we do it at a local Irish pub um, called Kelly's. And um, we have played at Kelly's, but it's a kind of a small venue for our band. Our band takes up quite a bit of space since 
we bring the grand baby grand piano everywhere we go. It's it's hard to bring that into an Irish pub without but, getting um, beer spilled all over it. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So, but no, we uh, we that's a good question. Uh, there's also a vintage scooter club up here, and um, it's called Two Percent Scooters, which is I think is a really ingenious name. But uh, yeah, the Two Percent Club. Um, <laughs> I, you'll have to ponder that for a little bit, and uh, it's got a it's got like a triple entendre going on there. Right. But um, but I would love to do a, a mods versus rockers up here, and um, do an event like that where we can bring music, motorcycles, scooters, maybe find a uh, a mod band, uh, either a ska band or a a who cover band or something like that to play that with would be pretty rad. do something like that up here in, in North Idaho. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, yeah. And then I know last, I know I, well, maybe yeah, last year you put on a distinguished gentleman's ride. Um, it looked like it might've only been about five people though. And I mean, <laughs> how big is the scene up there? Is it, is it pretty small? It was, it was actually a couple years or two or three years, whenever, whatever, I think it was the first year they did it. And it was small. Mm -hmm. It was a small event and it grew really quickly. Um, I handed it over to one of the guys in our vintage group because, um, you know, all different types of bikes are, are welcome and that's fine. It's just, I try to keep our vintage motorcycle group vintage and, um, and so I just didn't really feel like it aligned with what I'm trying to do up here. I still attended uh, this year, but I turned it over to to one of our members that owns a Modern Triumph. Did you have to wear a um, fake mustache when you went? <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, this year I, I rode my uh, Norton Commando Cafe Racer, and uh, I dressed up like Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> so, <laughs> complete with boomerang bow tie. Oh my God. He's, he's a gentleman. I don't know if he's distinguished, but, or maybe it's the other way around. He's distinguished, but I don't know if he's a gentleman. <laughs> I think that's more like it. <laughs> right. So yeah, no, yeah. um, this year's distinguished gentleman's ride. We probably had, I don't know, 20 people out, maybe 30. And it was in the newspaper and, uh, you know, that's cool. I, uh, I kind of shy away from things when they get a little corporate. So Right. But I still had fun going. It was fun. Well, I almost got killed by somebody who came onto our side of the road and ran about six of us off the road. But uh, um, other than that, it was a blast. A motorcycle trying to catch up to the ride. <laughs> oh, wow. Holy cow. Yeah. No yeah, one got hurt. No one got hurt. So that was good. Good. No kidding. He did have a mustache. Go ahead. He did have yeah, a mustache. It probably flew up in his eyes and he couldn't see very good. <laughs> that's why <laughs> I'm going to send you a picture because you will appreciate this mustache. <laughs> okay. Um, and then speaking about being in the paper and stuff, I know in the past you've kind of been, I, I'm not hundred percent sure covered in the press, but uh, I know that you were invited to the Concord d'Elegance at Dana. I want to say, was it Dana point a few years ago? And, yeah. and you, you've made the news with your music and stuff like that. There's a local paper up there that covered you. And I think, uh, maybe someone from Washington covered you guys for, uh, playing a vintage music festival. And so, I mean, 
being in the media is nothing new for you. Is it, is it hard now that you're a hermit to uh, <laughs> assuage the, the media onslaught? <laughs> um, what was the question? <laughs> I was going to ask you about your, your Concord elegance. Uh, That's right. Concord elegance. Your, yes. Your, yeah. Yes, we did. Uh, we were invited to the Concord elegance, um, two or three years ago. And that was really, it was an honor, um, because we got to judge very, some very historic motorcycles, um, alongside some very historic motorcycle racers. And, um, because of our affiliation with the BJMC and, um, doing cafe racers for quite a while. Um, we were invited down to judge the cafe racer segment. And then I ended up judging other motorcycle segments as well, which um, I was judging alongside. Um, I, I, I am too deep into this stone ruination to tell you names. So I'm not going to go that way, <laughs> but um we got to judge some really amazing bikes. One of them was the, the standout was um, a Scott flying squirrel from the thirties. That was not only owned by Steve McQueen, but it was also owned by Von Dutch. Wow. And um, I was demeriting because that's my job as a, as a judge. If you are ever to judge something, you have to, you have to judge a bike based on the guidelines. And to me, like that was just the end of the show. Like it beats out a perfectly restored Brof Superior or or a Vincent Black Shadow or anything like that because of its history. And you're demeriting a bike because Von Dutch painted something on it or Steve McQueen, you know, chromed a oil tank, you know? And and at that point, um, I wish I could remember the gentleman's name that I was judging this. It's I I'm ashamed that I can't remember. Um, was it somebody if it comes famous? Me, oh, absolutely. A totally like somebody pivotal in like motorcycle racing in the fifties and sixties. And I literally was judging this bike with him and, and we were discussing how sad it is that we're having to demerit this incredible machine. And we were invited back the next year. And I, I, gracefully declined i just i just don't think i don't think it's uh really appropriate for to be judging cafe racers at a at a show like that because a cafe racer is totally different than a concours bike and i understand the point of concours because you're trying to preserve history um and replicate it but you know steve mcqueen and von dutch's bike didn't have the proper cadmium plating on the, uh, you know, passenger peg bolt. So, you know, therefore there's no way it can win. And, and to me, as, as beautiful of an event as it is, it's just not really my interest or even my specialty because, um, my favorite bikes are not perfect and that's what makes them perfect. Right. No, and it's, I could see how 
it would be super subjective and based on each, I mean, yeah, you could have 20 cafe racers or even 20 vintage bikes that weren't bone stock and each one might be totally beautiful in an, in a separate way in and of itself. And yeah, having to pick out of those, like, cause each one just, just cause it's not bone stock or whatever, whatever the criteria is. Yeah. That, that would be hard as hell because maybe they took it off to make it perform better or whatever the reason right. being, you know, right. yeah, it'd be hard right. for me to judge too. Yeah. No, that sounds like it'd be just emotionally taxing <laughs> to go and do it that was. every year. Yeah, it was, it was really it was odd. It was odd. I mean, beautiful bikes, but um, if you go to 59cafe.com and you look at our our page that talks about our values, the first line is that you earn your scars. And um, part of what I love about vintage bikes is the history. And that's an accumulated, not just the history of when it left the Triumph factory or the Norton factory or the BSA factory or the BMW factory. Part of that history is what the kids did with it a month later, or, you know, maybe even that's what somebody won a race on, you know, a decade later, which is crazy. That would never happen now. Oh, right, right. You know, because stuff changes so quickly. Whereas, you know, people ask me, they'll come over and look at one of my Nortons and say, what year is that? And I'll say, well, it's a 71 or 75, but the motor was basically the same in the late forties. You know, and that's part of what ruined the British motorcycling industry uh, was there. They, they kind of stuck with what they did if they did it right or wrong. And, um, and that just doesn't really happen anymore except Harley, but their marketing department is amazing. They're, Oh yeah. You know, well, Euro four compliance this year really made them finally step up and quit making something that they've been making since 70s basically uh so now that i know that it's hard for you to judge and you know pick one bike from the other what let me ask you to pick what's your favorite bike out of your stable that you have (laughs) (laughs) right now in your your disposal in your garage it really depends on the day and uh you know if i'm dead sober i would probably say it would be a the bmw r60 slash two or my Norton Commando, or I have a BSA Hornet. Um, shoot, I can't pick one. But if I've had a beer or two, my favorite bike is my QA50 Honda. My yeah. little mini bike, you know? And and so there's a range. I guess the ratio of beer to motorcycle ratio is something that you have to consider. Uh, what one have you had the most fun on? Uh, Again, <laughs> uh, defer to question one. <laughs> right. Depends on where you were and how much beer was consumed at the time. Right. You know, um, I had a, um, I had a Ducati 944 um, and it was a cool bike. And if I was going to drive to Seattle or, you know, fly out to Montana, that would be the most comfortable bike to do it on. But um, great bike. I love modern Ducatis. Um, but um, I sold it because I have more fun just kind of tootling around these days. Um, I hurt myself pretty bad. I have a 57 Triumph Tiger Cub that uh, Joe Cop invited me out 
to uh, Spokane to flat track. And uh, I tore my MCL. So that was fun until I tore my MCL. Um, but I've hurt myself enough skateboarding and riding motorcycles <laughs> that um, I hope you didn't hear that. That was my that was my reminder to go to my next meeting. Oh, no. And it's, a, uh, it's a clip from Whistle Tips where the guy goes, woo, woo. Um, oh, so anyhow, I mean, I, I don't really I don't really ride fast anymore you know i want to ride till i'm 100 if i stay alive that long and so i just i i enjoy i enjoy i don't even to be honest with you i don't take a 70s cafe racer with uh, avon Speedmasters to the limit anymore i really just i i'm really careful we have a lot of deer out here and going 130 miles an hour and hitting a deer is not ideal I mean, not for you. I mean, don't, don't knock it for other people that want to try it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. That's true. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and speaking of wildlife and that you, I mean, you mentioned that you could shoot them off your porch in your underwear if you wanted to. Um, have you had any encounters, any close encounters with wildlife uh, in or around on a bike yet? Um, yeah. Yep. All the time. Um, I, uh, I went over the handlebars avoiding a moose lying in the road on a, uh, trail 70. The other day I came home on my, uh, Norton and there was, a a moose in my driveway that, um, if you've never been chased by a moose, it's, it's not good. Let's just, let's just say it that way. It's a moose. Moose are pretty gnarly. Um, they're, they're huge. I've almost hit several deer. I've had deer galloping along beside me as I'm, you know, going about 50 up a hill or it's uh yeah, there's a lot of wildlife out here in my yeah. neighborhood. There's actually somebody with peacocks and several times I've almost hit a peacock, but uh, the scariest wildlife I've seen is I went out on my back deck to hop in the jacuzzi one morning and there was a, uh, a mountain lion in my backyard. Whoa. I thought you were going to say Sasquatch. Have you seen Sasquatch or has Sasquatch <laughs> tried to ride into your bikes around without permission? Oh yeah. Yeah. Sasquatches are a huge problem up here. Yeah. No kidding. So dude, you've got like everything but bighorn sheep and elk. Like uh, actually know? every, every morning, every single morning I, I wake up at about five o'clock. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I wake up every morning at about five o'clock and make my coffee and um, about five thirty, six o'clock every morning, there's a herd of about 20 or 30 elk uh, going through the field out behind my, behind my house. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah, amazing. It's, it, it's really, I love living up here because I feel, I feel like less of a jerk for taking away nature from itself. It's nice to see elk and, and um, even, even to be able to see, to say I've I've saw a uh, mountain lion in my backyard is kind of cool because, yeah, they'll eat you and your dogs, but um, but at least you haven't run them off, you know. So that's yeah. cool. I like that. Yeah, right. And uh, to see a Sasquatch, which very few people have actually seen, I mean, that's pretty cool too. You see, um, you see those out when you're snowboarding a lot. Okay. We're getting toward the end here, but before we wrap up, 
uh, it is winter. Winter time's coming up. What do you guys do uh, when riding season's over? Do you guys play more music, or do you guys uh, get out there and put tracks on your motorcycles, or what? What type of stuff do you guys do when winter time hits? Because I'm, I'm assuming in Idaho, especially up there, that it hits pretty hard and snows pretty good and all that great stuff. It does. It hits hard, and yeah, there's a lot of snow. Um, we have a couple of um, uh, RMK. 700 snowmobiles that you just pull those out and just rip around the neighborhood. Um, also Joe cop does a flat track series indoor at the Spokane fairgrounds. And that I, even though I probably won't go hurt myself again, it's still pretty cool to go watch. And uh, for people who who haven't been damaged doing that yet. That's a pretty cool, pretty viable option. And I switched from skateboarding to snow skating or snow snowboarding. So I actually, I love winter actually. And, um, I can still ranch on bikes, but, um, but swapping over to a, a snowmobile for a few months is it's amazing. 700 CCs yeah. of two stroke power. And I mean, that's nothing today. Now they're 1200 CC two stroke turbocharged, you know, snowmobiles yeah. that people I, are back flipping over semi trucks and whatever they're doing. Yeah. But a 700 CC two stroke is more exciting than anything I do during the dry season. Yeah, that sounds like the bike that Kenny Roberts wouldn't ride, that TZ 750. They're probably yeah. pretty gnarly. Yeah, they're gnarly. Yeah, way beyond my skill level. So, well, great. Good thing you're out there riding on them every winter then. <laughs> are, you, are you talking about the bike or the snowmobile? <laughs> the snowmobile, the snowmobiles. Right, right. It's fun. It's fun falling in snow. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, what's funny too, Joe Cop just raced the Indian flat tracker at the very last race of the year. And, um, he came in seventh. I think he started, he, he got the whole shot and led the first, two or three laps, if I'm not mistaken, and came in wow. seventh overall. So he, he was, yeah, that was pretty bitching to watch was him. Was that a modern, of, modern Indian? Mm-hmm. The, the new one, yeah, the new FTR that they just came out with. Uh, the, you know, Harley's going down the tubes quickly, and Indian's, like, jumping all over this renewed rivalry, basically. And good for yeah, them. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. You know, um, um, so, yeah. Indian Indian is one of the sponsors of the of the Flat Track series. And if you can come up this winter, um, they're doing a hooligan series, like a hooligan. So you can come and ride anything that you want to. And um, we collaborate with Joe pretty often. Um, he's a he's a really cool guy. Really, yeah. really great rider, obviously, um, on modern stuff. But he's into vintage stuff, too. Rad. That'd be so fun to, to ride around with him and just pick his brain. So yeah, we're going to, we're going to let you go. I know you got another, uh, obligation, probably, uh, much more interesting than this one, <laughs> but before we cut you loose, is there any place on the web that we can find you? Uh, anything you want to plug as far as music and as far as motorcycles go? Yes, please. Um, go to johnnyjswing.com and buy our album. Um, we have an album coming out on a punk rock label, which is pretty awesome. Um, it's, uh, it's a great place for a swing album to be released. <laughs> it's pretty punk rock. Um, and then take on the swing. It is. 
Right. How, how much more punk can you be than like signing a swing band from Idaho? It doesn't get more punk than that. Right. And uh, yeah, check us out on 59cafe.com. And if you need, if you ever have any questions about setting your timing or which brown seat you should put on your Triumph for BSA, just give us a buzz. Man, you beat me to that punch. All right. Well, thank you, Eric, for wasting a perfectly good portion of your life with us. I hope you enjoyed the beer and uh, our cheesy conversation. And uh, we'll catch you maybe on a future show. We'll check back in with you. I held up the tides on Monday so I could show the boys next door. So, hey, that was our interview with Eric Johnson from Johnny J and the Flatfoot Flugies. Where else are you going to hear swing music about motorcycles unless you transport yourself back to 1965 or something like that? Uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed our talk. If you enjoyed what you heard, trying to let that music play up in a little bit in the background. If you enjoyed what you heard there, check out johnnyjswing.com. Go uh, order yourself a vinyl. Because as we were talking later in the show, I realized he did, didn't make CDs, but he did uh, make some really bitchin' vinyls with a digital download. So still, you can still uh, download it to your MP3 and or uh, whatever your whatever you play. Like your car probably has something that it plays now that they don't make record players for cars anymore. <laughs> really terrible right now what's happening my diy tech tip for this week is going to be don't swallow hot food i don't know how long it takes for the inside tube of your body to heal the one that goes that opens in the top and ends at the bottom but dude i'm in some serious pain i might have to cut this episode a little bit shout uh plus i'm heading out this is a ride report guess what motherfucker it's thursday and uh, it's time to edit this show and get it out to you tomorrow. And I'm headed out to Long Beach IMS tomorrow. And uh, Chuckles McGuckles from the Wheel Nerds podcast. Hopefully we hook up tomorrow. We'll see. Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. Maybe I sneak up karate chop your ACL. Maybe, uh, maybe that doesn't happen. He's probably tear my head off. So anyways, I wanted to leave you. Remember, I wanted to talk about some old school stuff and old school tech and bikes and stuff like that. And this resurgence that I've seen and what it could mean, what this smaller bike resurgence could mean for us. But I I really, it's hard for me to talk right now. I'm going to leave you with a little bit of funny outtake from me and Johnny J. Plus I will point out that recently on cycle world and whatnot, there have been a bunch of eighties sport bike, uh, what, am I, what should I call these? They're revisiting the 80 sport bike. So all of this this whole trend of 80 stuff coming back, it really is happening. I don't think the sidecar thing is going to take off quite as big as I thought it would was going to. But the 80 sport bike, I just read this. Uh, Nick Janich had written an article about his 1985 FZ 750 that he just purchased and he did a little memoir of the write-up that he did in 85 on one and 
he proceeded to go and carve up the canyons right around here where, uh, you know, by Newcomb's Ranch on the two all the way over to Malibu and just tore up the tires the day before they were to go test it at a track. So this 80s sport bike thing really is coming back. Uh, I think it's pretty kind of, it's neat. It's cool. I think that it's really great what we're doing going forward and all the stuff that we you know, have developed as far as safety, as far as technology, as far as being able to do motorcycles better. And I think it's kind of cool that there's like a new retro scene coming out that incorporates all this stuff into motorcycling and making us better people, better riders. All right. I got to get, uh, I got to go to bed for, to get up early in the morning and let this throat of mine heal a little more. Um, my DIY tech tip for this week was going to be not to be afraid to ask people who are professionals in the field that you want to learn in and don't be afraid, you know, even YouTube, you can look up experts on YouTube, learn how to do something new. And I always like to incorporate everything that's creative in this world uh, because I know that you may be a motorcyclist, but you don't fabricate motorcycles okay or you don't work uh, exclusively with motorcycles but maybe you draw them or whatever so whatever it is that you're trying to do that's creative don't don't be afraid to watch a a professional show you how to do it because one of the things that i learned and actually don't be afraid to go to a class on it is rather what i should say when i when i mean professional i don't always mean professional in the environment that you want to work in uh, i forget what they like an adjunct sort of person one of the biggest things that i learned after learning to weld was going to school to learn uh how to weld and uh, took right here in the local college, Pasadena City College. They had this awesome welding class and this awesome shop and just crazy everything you could want to know and, and maybe want to just take every single shop class that they had there and learn crazy stuff that I'll probably never use and, and use tools that I'll probably never have a use for. But man, it was just it's that awesome once you get into that environment. The thing is, that teacher who had been a welder forever and, and was probably an adjunct teacher uh, taught me things that I never learned in the professional environment. When I first learned to weld, it was a bunch of you know yokels at a body shop who weld to make money. They weld to replace factory stuff, so they're very good at what they do. And uh, also a bunch of practical jokers. And that doesn't always hurt, you know, having some fun, making learning fun. But Also, when you're learning to do something from someone who does it a very specific way, like, you know, when you're when you work at a body shop, you learn to weld specific to ICAR standards. You learn to weld specific to manufacture procedures because your job as a body person, as a technician, is to repair a vehicle back to or better than factory standards. So you're not fabricating a whole bunch of stuff, you know, unless you work at like a dune buggy shop where you're fabbing up stuff or a race shop where you're fabbing up stuff. You're doing stuff a very specific way. So when you take a class, you go, you know, you go somewhere, you go to a community college, you're going to learn a wide variety of stuff. I never learned to stick weld. It was always MIG in, in, uh, in the shops, you know, because we're always welding mild steel and cars are now going to like, 
uh, adhesive bonding rather than welding and a lot more synthetic materials. A long time ago, I think it was in this, uh, right around in the first five or 10 episodes, I talked about how motorcycles may be seeing a change as they're getting more components that cars have with all the IMUs and ABSs and traction controls and, and dynamic suspensions, you know, especially on your, your, uh, bikes like BMWs and stuff like that. And Harleys, everybody talks about how heavy Harleys are. Well, on the car side, they're getting more and more and more sensors and stuff like that. So they're making stuff out of lighter weight, uh, materials. They're doing away with the old school crumple zones that you'd put in metal because nowadays the way you can fabricate with certain materials and carbon composites and stuff like that, you don't need crumple zones. You actually need, you know, blank voids and stuff like that to deter uh, energy around it. So a lot of times if you want to learn to fab and, and be a creator, hell, if you're an illustrator and you want to go illustrate and you're trying to learn from the field you sometimes are only going to learn that specific way. You know, you're only going to learn a specific technique to that field. So don't be afraid to, like I'm saying, YouTube's a good, good resource. I mean, that's YouTube university is like, what can't you learn on there nowadays? And, uh, you know, going to a, a community college that teaches the basics. It's kind of like when I talk about what I said earlier in this episode about having an old crummy bike that's carbureted with no ABS to learn on. It's kind of nice when you're learning techniques to learn that. You know, you don't want to go to a, a portrait painting class if you want to learn to do, you know, pen and ink line technical drawings or something like that. But you can find something like that out there in the world from a professional that does it and you don't necessarily want to limit yourself. You know what I mean? You don't want to get focused in on one, uh, one area like Chip Foose, excellent illustrator. He can draw a car great, uh, from scratch and color it in and everything that would take some people, uh, a three person job. It would take some, some people would be good at doing the initial sketch. Some people would be good at the uh, painting and shading. And some people would be good at the like design, the measurement and layout and all that crap. You know, you know what I'm getting at? So sometimes it would take three people to do what one person could show you. And so don't get pigeonholed into it, but also don't be afraid to ask a professional. And if you are going to ask a professional, um, you know, kind of make sure that it's, they're not pigeonholing down into one specific thing if you want to be a creative person. So yeah, one of the greatest things I ever did was learn to weld at PCC despite the years I worked in the shop. You know what I mean? It made me a better, a better builder, a better welder, and a more critical thinker. I wasn't just replacing spot welds and crap and sheet metal like I was at the at the body shop you know so yeah anyways that's my DIY tech tip for this week don't be afraid to go out and learn something from a professional in a field that you want to get into but also don't get pigeonholed into that very 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 specific um way of doing something or a technique that you might get pigeonholed into if you were to try to get into that field to do whatever your, you know, whatever your interests are in. So that's it. I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I'm going to cut out. I, I can't talk anymore and, um, I gotta get to some sleep for Long Beach. So I will see you guys next week. It's been, it's been a blast trying to talk through this, um, burnt hole that I call a throat now. And, um, 
we'll see you guys next week. I hope you guys have a much better eating experience than I've had. Uh, keep your kickstands in the air <laughs> along with your front tire. <laughs> Dude, stupidest sign off ever. And now I leave you with deep thoughts from Eric Johnson and yours truly. Cowboys rode on brown seats, so maybe this black seat thing was really just is the smaller blip in riding history. You know, right. if you think of riding something mounted, I'm sure this black seat is actually the smaller blip. Right. Imagine but all the yeah, cowboys. Man. Imagine all the cowboys that were pissed off when they started dying, <laughs> dying leather black. Right. <laughs> I know, dude. They had brown you know seats and they had mustache they were the ultimate they were the og hipster (laughs) they were that's right I'm sure that my interview has declined like slowly throughout the whole thing. Making brown seats since buckskin was a color. <laughs> I've been to LA. I've bought the $12 lattes, but you oh, need yeah. to get your ass up to Coeur d'Alene, dude. Yeah, you got that right. Uh, too soon? I want to see Joe Cop and a moose. Why is that making? Oh, it's touching here. Oh, sensitive. Oh, do you hear that? You don't hear anything. Now you do. Gosh, wow. All right. Should I edit this out? Probably not. This is great audio. Yeah, for sure. I'm sick of seeing the $7,000 CB 400s. I remember before the internet. I don't remember how I worked before the internet. There you are. Hi. Perfect. How you doing? I do kind of feel like popping a brew. (laughs) And Want to see some of my guitars? Uh, do you have any, um, I don't remember, I guess, I, I guess I didn't have the internet right away, but I, uh, a lot of other people did. That sounds like you're scratching or blowing it with a turkey baster. Yeah. Can you hear, can you hear this? I'll probably edit you know, that out. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I'm totally lost in that question, but, uh. But yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, you better edit, edit a lot of this out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sasquatches are a huge problem up here. <laughs>